This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. Hungry for sports? Hungry for baseball? I know I am. You're going to love this. Hall of Famer, baseball legend, Cal Ripken Jr. Cal Ripken, it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, sometimes what happens in these interviews is the charity component is left to the end. I want to start right off the top because this is a traumatic time for our country. You've adjusted your foundation. You've adjusted its focus. Tell my audience what you're doing and how you're accomplishing it. Sure. Uh, we have a very successful foundation uh, uh, in the name of my father. Um, it's been going for 20 years. Um, we've built a wonderful infrastructure. We have about 35 to 40 board members that have resources all over the country. And we help kids and we go into neighborhoods. Basically, we build fields. We would have celebrated our 100th field this year, which costs about a million bucks a pop. So you can add that up pretty quickly. And we devise programmings to help these kids in uh, really tough areas. But we sat around and started to figure out what are we going to do? And uh, our executive director said, well, let's focus our attention on some of the issues now. And when uh, the thought of uh, feeding uh, these families and kids food insecurity, when that uh, issue came up, we all instantly thought that was the right thing to do. So we try to change our focus and our resources and point them in the families. Feeding America is the partner that we called up, said, look, we don't know how to distribute food, but we really want to help. And uh, they've been a wonderful partner. Our, our partners have stepped up really big. Um, the Kevin Harvick Foundation, Ollie's Bargain Outlets, um, Niagara Cares, all of a sudden they put money in. We put $100,000 in, and all of a sudden we had a nest egg of money to start with. But we thought it would be really good to, to uh, encourage others to help because in the smallest of ways, for $1 given, it, it is 10 meals distributed. So just think, $5 is 50 meals, $10 is 100 meals. You can have a significant impact just by uh, donating 5 or $10. So if, if uh, you can do that on my new handle, I am now on uh, Twitter, which is at Cal Ripken Jr. or ripkinfoundation.org. It's really simple. It's just a, a one click away where you can, uh, you can help um, family and kids with food security. And... Cal, you've seen it. I've seen it. Everyone's seen it. There are food bank lines stretching for blocks upon blocks in major cities in this country and in rural areas. The need is acute. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, you re if you've done any work in some of these communities, uh, food insecurity is a real-life issue in normal times. But in these kind of times, it's really a big issue. Um, and I think the realization is um, – the kids in some of these areas really require and uh, really re, uh, rely on the school systems for their food or after school programs or boys and girls clubs after school programs. And that element of feeding is, is built in. But uh, now that that's gone, um, we got to do um, above and beyond just to make sure that they get fed. And are you learning something as this prog prog progress goes, Cal? Are you learning? Because you've obviously shifted the entire focus of what you were doing. I'm sure you got pretty good at the thing you were accustomed to doing. Now you're trying to accomplish something completely different. Are you learning through the process? Well, I think uh, one of the principles my dad always gave me is know what you know and know what you don't know. You can want to help. And we are learning in the process. And we are serving those communities, uh, you know, um, um, in many other ways through our baseball uh, fields and our programming, which which essentially we give them an outdoor safe place to play in a protected way where they can, uh, can move on in a direction that's positive. Um, but we rely on uh, the, the knowledge of the food banks. We rely on Feeding America a lot. They know what they're doing. 
Uh, they can distribute food all over the place. So we just essentially say, hey, let us um, lend us lend your let let us lend you our resources, our uh, influences, our infrastructure, um, and you tell us how we can help you best. Very good. Let's talk some baseball. Sure. How optimistic are you, Cal Ripken Jr., that Major League Baseball will commence this season and there will be something approaching a recognizable season for fans like you and fans like me? Well, there's a little bit more talk about it lately, which gives, uh, gives all of us hopes for optimism. I'm generally an optimistic person, but I do know the, uh, uh, the commissioner really knows the importance of baseball um, in, uh, in, times, in tough times. I mean, I, I did witness it at the end of my career. Uh, 9-11 occurred when I was saying goodbye, and all of a sudden, all of us in baseball said, well, we, we just play a game. The real issues, um, this is real life that's going on right now. But when we came back to play, it was really interesting the role that baseball played in, in giving comfort uh, to those. Uh, I think we all, we all like a routine. We all like checking in on what happens day to day. And baseball is uh, our national pastime. It's uh, every single day. You get used to checking in. It gives you a certain comfort of normalcy. And I think that's what uh, sports does for people. I think baseball really understands that. So I'm really happy that they're looking for all ways in which to bring it back. It's going to be a different year than any other year. But that doesn't mean it can't play its role. And uh, so they're talking about a 100-game schedule now. They're talking about um, realigning uh, different, uh, you know, the leagues don't matter anymore. The divisions don't matter anymore. Let's, uh, let's figure out a way where we can have a competitive season that produces a champion. But I think the big thing is they just want to get back and provide people with a chance to escape or, or, uh, or look at uh, something in an entertaining sort of way uh, and makes them feel good and makes them feel comfortable. What about player safety? You know and you lived it, Cal. There is and has been a history of sometimes contentiousness between the players' union and management. Players are going to want to know that they're safe. They're going to want to know that their work environment, where they play is safe, where they're housed is safe. Analyze that for my audience. <laughs> you're, you're putting my uh, analytical brain to uh, work here today. Um, first of all, I know from firsthand experience, sometimes uh, the business side the ugly business side shows itself in strikes and lockouts and those sorts of things. Um, but in this case, it's a partnership. Uh, it's the player side and it's also the, uh, the ownership side. And they're both on the same side and saying, we want to, to have baseball. We want to do it in the, in the safest possible way. And so um, I have no doubt that they're working together. You know, some concerns come from the players. Some concerns come from ownership. But in the end, they're not going to do anything that's going to compromise the safety. Can you imagine Major League Baseball for an entire season or for most of it with no fans involved at all? You know, yeah, it kind of takes me back to a time that maybe when you're in early spring training, you're in, uh, uh, you're playing eight o'clock in the morning B game sometimes. <laughs> to, uh, and, you're and I had to ask myself, okay, nobody's in the stands and we're competing, you know, to make a team or to kind of show what you're doing. So when the competition starts, you get really uh, caught up in the competition. Now, there is a huge value of energy and excitement that goes along with it. And if you've ever played in a big league environment and had 50,000 people screaming, you know, sometimes it's a point of controlling that adrenaline to get you back down where you can compete. Um, but I think it's going to be different. And I think the players will adapt to it really quickly. And when the competition between pitcher and hitter happens, you know, sometimes you're going to forget that uh, you're, you're not playing in front of people. You're trying to compete. and You're trying to win. I think the quality of baseball will be good. Practical question. There was almost two-thirds of a spring training, and now a six- to seven-week layoff. As a, someone who played this game at the very highest level, how much time will players need to get back into baseball shape? Well, we, uh, um, because of the time off, there's been some games that have been played. Um, you know, the 21-31 game was back in 1995, and I had a chance to watch you know, that celebration all over again. But it reminded me that that season started – in a shortened spring training. There was a strike, and then there was a uh, cancellation of the World Series, and then the lockout. So then we had to get ready in a three-week window. And I was worried coming in whether, whether we could get ready in three weeks. But for a regular player, it just means you're starting to play more innings earlier and getting more at-bats. And I thought it was the perfect time to actually get ready. So I think big league players, everyday players especially, can get ready maybe in a two-week uh, time frame. The pitchers need a little bit longer, but I think during this off time, pitchers can still keep their routine, throwing on the side, and those sorts of things. Um, but they won't—you won't be able to extend them into deeper into the games 
um, anyway until you have a longer spring training. But I think probably a two- to three-week window is probably what's necessary for a regular player to get ready. Can a, fu- a season function, Cal, without minor leagues? Um, I think that yeah, – I'm a minor league owner, so I'm right. uh, worried about that right now, thinking we're not going to have any uh, – uh, and, and minor league teams are really important to the communities. I'd almost say more and more important than a um, big league team is to their community because it's uh, it's that's their their only thing that they're they're watching. But yes, they uh, they're gonna, they're going to have to have uh, you know some support. They're going to have to have something. That, they'll probably use their minor league stadiums to keep people in shape and get them ready. Injuries are going to happen. Uh, uh, you're going to need certain uh, things during the course of the season. So yeah, they're going to have to have a support. I don't know if they're going to have the support of the whole minor league system, but certainly you're going to have support from AA and AAA. You're going to have to expand rosters, it seems. And I know the union and management are talking about that. It seems like you're going to have to start with a larger roster than we historically have just because you're going to need players nearby and available. Well, so some of these interesting things that you have to deal with and you have to identify your needs in this particular season might be able to uh, be, be incorporated in years in the future when things go back to normal. Right. Early on in the season, I would guess you're going to need more pitchers because you can't extend them. You can't get them up to, uh, to their endurance because it needs pitching, rest, pitching, rest. And that takes a, a period of time. That's why spring training is um, uh, six weeks long or a month uh, to get the pitchers up to speed. So you're going to have to have more pitchers. Uh, I, I don't know if you're going to have to have more regular players. But a roster expansion in the early part of the season uh, seems uh, normal and natural to me. But once everybody gets uh, down, it's more important to get down to a, um, a fair roster size, you know, and one that's not in- totally increasing when you get to the playoffs. You talked about extending pitchers. Uh, can I ask you a question that sort of uh, is a product of my 57 years? So that's 50 years as an active baseball fan. Uh, do you lament as much as I do the death of the complete game? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm split on that a little bit. I think the over-specialization of the bullpen uh, needs to be looked at. But I like the specialization of the bullpen. Um, the hard part about the uh, 162-game season, and, and as a hitter standpoint, if I'm facing a starting pitcher twice, and then you bring a matchup guy in, into me for my third at bat and a matchup guy for my fourth, which is usually the closer, that makes it much harder to hit. But how do, you, how do you continue that over the course of the season, which requires management? I still think the value of the, some of those guys, those horses that can go three innings or, or a starting pitcher that can give a, a blow to the bullpen when they have to is by going eight or nine innings. So, you know, I, I like the art of pitching, and it used to be when guys pitched complete games, they would do it with less pitches. You know, Scotty McGregor, um, when I came to the big leagues, would finish a game in 85 pitches, and he'd throw a shutout. So – Maybe it's the art of understanding how to get guys out, not necessarily strike them out, but how to get them out and keep your, your, uh, your starting pitcher in the game. I hope that comes back. As you know, one of the complaints about the current game is that there are too many strikeouts, that pitchers don't pitch to contact. As pitchers like Scott McGregor you just mentioned, or in my hometown of San Diego, Randy Jones, for the couple, three years that he was a sensational single ball, single ball, single ball pitcher. But throwing to contact is an art form, and it seems less prevalent in the game currently. Well, it's simple to me. Is uh, You're right. It is the understanding of how to pitch. Um, successful pitching, in my opinion, is throwing off the timing of the hitter. Um, the hitter is trying to time the pitcher. The pitcher is trying to throw off that timing. And if you throw off that timing ever so slightly, that you wait too long, then you get jammed. You hit the ball in the uh, fat part of the bat. If you get out a little early, hit it off the end of the bat, and the result is not always going to be positive. So pitching to content, contact is a smart way to go out about pitching. But sometimes when you emphasize the power game, you emphasize the strikeouts, um, pitchers don't want you to make contact. So uh, that will make the counts go three and two, um, deeper counts, uh, you know, trying to trick them at different counts. And all you're doing is rising the pitch count. Pitchers that still know what they, they're doing, and they know strike one is the most important pitch, and they know how to throw off the timing, even with a changeup and a fastball, a 10-mile-an-hour difference. They can um, add a little bit, pull a little bit off, and uh, they can be effective with far less pitches. Picking up on the point you just made, I've heard this said, but I want you to validate it for me, please. I've heard it said that if players are sitting in the dugout, they are going to talk to each other more, not so much about a pitcher who throws 98, but a pitcher who throws 98 and then 84. Oh, well, definitely. I mean, uh, 10 miles an hour difference is probably the perfect uh, speed 
if you have a really good changeup uh, where your changeup looks like a fastball because it comes out of your hand and that 10 mile an hour difference, if it starts to, we, we mentioned Scotty McGregor earlier. It was kind of interesting watching Scotty's end of his career as his uh, fastball came down a little bit, his changeup stayed the same. It would have been better if he would have slowed his changeup down if it was 85 and then 75. I remember Frank Tanana. He uh, was a fireballer when he first came in the league, was a power guy, and then learned how to be a pitcher. And as his stuff changed, he would alter the speeds on the slow side. So that makes total sense to me. But if somebody has 20 miles an hour difference, a 95 down to 75, they have that, that sort of super Bugs Bunny changeup. If you, if you throw that in the, in the mix, you can't hit one looking for the other. Uh, Trevor Hoffman would validate that, I think. He had the, he had the best Bugs Bunny changeup. <laughs> I love that Bugs Bunny changeup. Um, is it? Do you remember the cartoon when? Yes. Football? You remember that cartoon, right? Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely, absolutely. One and of my so favorites. A lot of, a lot of young people don't. So, right. I, mean, I think okay, my analogies are really old, but if you go back to look at the cartoon, that Bugs Bunny changeup that floats in and the guy swings at it three times. Right. Cal uh, will pause whole- and tell all of our younger viewers and listeners: uh, go to Google. Find it. You'll enjoy it. Um, is it possible to socially distance in a dugout? I think it probably is. Um, I was trying to figure out that is, uh, is that you got the catcher and the uh, batter standing pretty close to proximity to each other. The umpire's got to be in that little group. But uh, in the dugout, um, you can, you can, the dugouts have gotten bigger. There's people that stand on the railing. There's people that stand in the back. Um, you, could, you could have spacing. I don't know whether the social distancing spacing is uh, – um, you can fully accommodate, but bullpens, uh, you can spread out in the bullpens. You can have other people in the clubhouse that aren't necessarily into the game. You can, you can keep them in, in the uh, clubhouse. I think there are ways to get around that, yes. Right. Uh, can you think of a pitcher who you owned in your career, meaning you performed very well against, but it's sort of astonishing to look back that you did that well because a pitcher was that good? Um, yes, but I would also tell you that um, most pitchers, you can own them for a little period of time, and then they figure you out, and then they own you for a period of time, and then you come back to some level of normalcy. The person that I couldn't understand is that uh, Brett Saberhagen came in the league throwing as hard as uh, anyone in the league with a really nasty curveball and breaking ball. And um, I was a good breaking ball hitter, but if you could throw a fastball and you could rush me inside and you could get me out pretty easy. For some reason, I saw Brett Sabregen really, really well. I hit a few home runs off of him early on in uh, my career. But then as time would go, he would look at me, he would make an adjustment, and he would figure out how to get me out for a while. So uh, um, I, don't, I think that's short-lived when you own somebody. What's the key to longevity in Major League Baseball? Um, to my dad, it was adjust and readjust. Uh, people are going to get to know you just like I use an example, but you have to adjust to even some of your aging skills and some of the things that you do. Maybe your experience goes up and you understand better, but your skill is coming down a little bit. So a long career means understanding yourself, uh, adjusting and readjusting. I learned that from Carl Yastrzemski, actually. In his last year, and a lot of people are surprised that I played against Carl. Right. He was in the early 80s. He uh, was finishing up his career with 23 or 24 years. I was just starting out my career. And I remember watching him really shift his weight to the front side. So when he got on second base, I asked him why. And he goes, he goes uh, you know, I feel like I, uh, I want to get out. I feel like I'm not as fast as I used to be. And so to stop me from getting out early, I put all my weight on my front foot, which makes me go back first, which I thought that made all the sense in the world. But here's a guy that was trying to figure out how can I have success um, even uh, when I get up in the, the end of my career. So you mentioned a moment ago that this is the 25th anniversary of 2131. You've had, obviously, a long time to look back on that. What stands out to you about that entire experience? First question. Second question, is there a point that you remember when you said to yourself, I'm committing to this? <laughs> um, uh, in some ways, when you look back on it, you, it, it's, uh, it doesn't seem conceivable that you were able to play that many games in a row. That's the first thing I thought, started to think about. All the things that could happen, all the small little injuries that could cause you to miss a game. Um, you know, that was all there, getting sick. And so that was amazing to me when I, when I think about it. But when you're in it, you're just focusing on that small one game at a time mentality, which dad gave me. And you come to the ballpark and try to meet the challenges of that particular day. The other thing that I think about that's a misconception a little bit is people automatically thought I was obsessed with the streak. You know, I would have rather traded that streak number in for hitting more home runs than Hank Aaron or more, more hits than Pete Rose. 
uh, I wanted to play and I wanted to play every day. And the definition of an everyday player was to be counted on every single day. Maybe the definition has changed a little bit now that you're looking for your best 145 or your best 150 games. And it's, it's normal for you to take some time off. But I would think even now the playoffs can be determined by one game out of 162. And you don't know which game um, you could have won and which you, you couldn't. So to me, it's still a matter of putting your best team on the field each and every day and then uh, letting the chips fall where they may. As you've had a time to look back on it, uh, any regrets about where your statistics might have been had you taken some time off? <laughs> I laugh and joke. And please take this as a joke. Uh, my stats probably would have gone up um, if I would have uh, strategically take, taken eight or ten days off a year. I know that uh, there were got a lot of guys that I knew I was going to struggle hitting the ball off. If you had a heavy sinker and you're running it in on me, um, it was going to be a tough game for me. So it would have been nice to take eight or ten of those uh, games off your, uh, off your statistics. It would have been a, a helping mentally. And I know that my batting average would have jumped uh, a number of points just, uh, just from taking that what would it be taking a, a five for 40 off your, <laughs> off your numbers at the end. And so a, a fan might hear you say that and say, oh, well, why didn't you, you must've been obsessed with the streak that it must've at some point become something that took you over or became a goal, an no, actual I, goal. And I have an answer for that is that there's a lot of intangible value, even in this day and age of measurement, you can't fully, um, gauge or measure the, the intangible value that somebody brings to the, uh, to the lineup. Uh, instead of using me as an example, and I learned this from Eddie Murray, Eddie Murray um, hitting fourth as a switch hitter in the lineup and being at first base in an eighth inning of a tie game in Yankee Stadium, um, everybody's a little nervous. Things are going crazy. You got first and second. You want to put a bunt play on. It's great to have Eddie that's been through that experience to come in and says, okay, here's what we're doing. And then execute that and then come out on the other side of that. So there's a calming value, I mean, for me to hit in front of Eddie. He could be 0 for 65, which I don't think he ever was. <laughs> and come the sixth inning, the manager would have to start to make a decision on what, what matchups he's going to have uh, um, through that game. And a lot of times that would benefit me. So there's a presence, there's a comfort, there's an intangible value that, that, that comes to, besides just hitting and fielding sometimes, there's these other values that you can bring to the table. And I thought that being the third hitter on my team and playing shortstop in the middle, that my value was there was every, every single day. And that's, that's what I was told through our managers because my managers chose me. I didn't, you know, that's another misconception is that I, I dictated the lineup. I didn't dictate the lineup. Maybe towards the end of my career, managers came in and thought, well, this thing's so big, I can't right. change it. But, <laughs> But I can tell you it started the first 1,000 games because the managers were choosing me each and every day, and I was playing. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's, the, it's the added values that you do bring, the decisions you make on coverages at the end of the game. Turning a tough double play when you need it in the eighth inning of a ball game doesn't show up all the time on the stats, but you knew you won the game because you made that contribution. And you might have been 0 for 4 with, with three punch outs. But I made that. I turned that double play to preserve that one run lead in the eighth, and we won. Speaking of that, uh, I heard a story about Mike Schmidt uh, one time who described one of his favorite games, and he said one of his favorite games was a game in which he had struck out four times in a row, looked miserable doing it, and then hit a walk off with his fifth at bat. A couple of things about that: focus, but also failure. Explain to my audience, because I try to communicate this when I explain my love of baseball to people, that you have to live with failure, and if you can't live with failure, you can't succeed. And I never – I didn't even make a JV high school team, so I never succeeded. I played for, four, for, for 12 years as a kid. But at, the, but at every level, especially as a youngster, you've got to live with failure. Well, you learn the most, and it's hard nowadays when you're trying to raise kids and teach kids. I think we're trying to, to help them not fail. And uh, the best learning experience that you can have is by going out and trying something and getting defeated and, and failing and then making an adjustment to, uh, to that. In a hitting, if you don't have a mindset that says, okay, even if I'm a great hitter or I have a really great year, I'm making seven outs out of 10. I'm failing seven out of 10 times. So you do have to forget, you know, what happened to the bat before or use that what ha happened before it's actually applied to win the game. Um, and you always have another opportunity. Um, and there's always tomorrow and there's always the next game. So I love the Mike Smith story. I heard one about uh, Frank, Frank Robinson. 
a similar one where he went up there and he knew the pitcher and the pitcher was hard on him and he knew he, he didn't hit the fastball very well and he looked for a slider all day long on this guy and the guy kept pounding him with fastballs and he was making outs and he had a bad game came up in that key situation in the game the last at bat they threw him the first slider he had a home run over the left field fence and won the game there you go so sometimes you have to be really stubborn and sometimes you have to say even though i made some outs i'm still going to come through and part of that is discipline of, of looking for the pitch, hitting the pitch you're looking for. And don't, don't keep looking for different pitches. Well, there's old saying is that it's better for you to be um, 100% wrong than 50% right. So um, what you say is I'm going to look for a fastball, and uh, if I don't get a fastball, I'm going to try to take the other pitches or the reverse. I'm looking for a breaking ball, and I'll take the fastball. But if I think I'm going to look for a slider, but maybe you'll throw me a fastball, you're in between both. And then you uh, you can't succeed. So it's better for you to, to look foolish and miss a ball by uh, five feet uh, than it is for you to be uh, halfway right and halfway wrong. We talked about 2131. There might be some in our audience who don't know what we're talking about. So that is the Ironman record established by Lou Gehrig. You passed it and then extended it by several hundred games. Was there ever a point in time, Cal, where you thought yourself – I'm in danger of becoming bigger than my team or bigger than my own role on this team? Um, I never looked at it that way. So uh, it wasn't about the streak. It's really interesting. During that period of time, there was five years in which I didn't miss an inning. And so you have to look at that and say, what's the rationale for that? But I was a young player learning, kind of get better. And so if you're swinging the back good in a game, even if it might be a lopsided game where you're losing by 10 runs, um, there was always a value to keep your swing going. If you took a time off, it was almost like you were worried that, okay, when I come back to the game tomorrow, where, where am I going to be? And the opposite of that is true, is that if you're struggling in that game where you're losing, I would always look for that last at bat to stay in the ball game to try something that might help me tomorrow. And so I kept thinking to myself, what's the use of from a mental break or a physical break getting an inning off? So I always wanted to get that last at bat and stay in the ball game. And uh, so that was just a way to look at it. Um, I remember my dad was the one that stopped that five inning, uh, that five year streak. Uh, we were losing by 10 runs, I think, in, uh, in Toronto. And he came up to me and said, you know, what do you think about, uh, you know, taking the inning off? And I go, what do you think? And he said, I think it'd be good for you. And I think at some point you could get a mental break and you, it could be helpful for you to leave that bad game behind you and then start new the next day. It sounds like you took a great deal of cues from your father in all aspects of your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we're talking, you were asking me to be analytical and figure things out. He was the most analytical person that, uh, and, and one of the more positive uh, people that'd be around. There was a, if, there, if there was a will, there was a way to get it done. And uh, so his advice, even though most of the time it was through baseball, certainly applied to every other aspect of life. And, and even now in business, those principles are still really valuable. One other thing people may not know is you had the unmatched I have to believe experience of playing major league baseball with your father and your brother mm -hmm. so um, you know we grew up in professional baseball uh, my dad was in the minor leagues for the first 14 years of my life then got called to the big leagues I then go through high school get drafted by the Orioles make it to the Orioles Billy four years later got drafted by the Orioles he goes through the minor league system a little longer than I did but then breaks in at 87 and then all of a sudden you have a dad and two sons you know, on the same team. It just so happened my dad had a brief managerial uh, opportunity, and it was right around that time. So dad managed his two sons. Now, Billy was a fantastic uh, defensive second baseman, a really good um, situational hitter, hit-and-run guy, could bunt and could uh, do, help the team in many different ways. Um, and I had a great deal of time uh, uh, playing with him at second base because the coordination and the understanding, because we were brothers, we knew in the toughest of double plays where we needed to get the ball to each other we turned some of the most toughest double plays there. But it was really one of those things that we didn't really focus on and how special it was. And you don't realize how special it is to be in that situation until it's gone, until dad gets fired, then Billy goes to another team. All of a sudden, I started to reflect on that, thinking how great it was to have the two most people in the world that you could trust on your team to help you through some tough times. And so I really missed that. And sometimes I don't know how I would have celebrated it anymore. I wish dad would have got a better opportunity to manage. I wish things would have turned out better for him in that regard. But I do really appreciate the opportunity to be teammates with my brother and my dad. I really need your thoughts, Cal, on 
the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox and sign stealing. Uh, what perspective would you like? <laughs> well, let me just throw one thing out. I've heard some major league pitchers say, I'd much rather throw to a batter juiced on steroids than one who knows the signal or the, the, the knows the pitch uh, that's coming because someone uh, clanged a trash can lid or some other device. Um, that's an interesting analogy. Um, but uh, I think perspective sometimes is, is needed is that um, there's a lot of different uh, um, things that happen, sign, sign stealing in baseball that some people think is okay. Like I will tell you, I never gave a sign at second base and I never received a second base, a sign at second base. If I'm hitting, it's me against the pitcher. It's not me against the pitcher with the help of the uh, guy on second base. But other people will tell you, when I get on second base, I've earned that right. And if the catcher gets a little lazy with his signs and he's not uh, deciphering real well, and I can see them, I should be able to take advantage of that information. Now, I just don't think that's the right way to play, but a lot of people do think that it's the right mm -hmm. way to play. But in the history of baseball, the uh, binoculars in the scoreboard and light switches and in the bullpens and then uh, standing on the on-deck circle trying to tell you, or the first and third base coach trying to cheat and get in and look at the catcher's signs if you're a little bit lazy, all that has been existing for a long time. It is a little concerning to me that technology has now made that easier or better or, uh, um, you know, that, uh, that, that you can use that information. But I got to tell you, when I played against somebody that we knew were given signs from second base, and I played shortstop and I'm behind him and you can see the right. pattern going on, there are ways to deal with that. You change your signs more frequently um, in a really harsh way. You tell the pitcher to uh, put down a curveball. The hitter t tells the pitcher, the, the guy on second tells the hitter that a curveball is coming, and then you throw a pitch right here. <laughs> And then their life flashes in front of their uh, eyes for a minute. And I will tell you that you break the trust between that, that sign-stealing scheme that's going on. And if you're a hitter and that guy gives you the next sign, you got to say, hmm, I wonder if that's really going to be a fastball or a breaking ball. And then I think you win. So um, I'm not saying that things are overblown, and I'm not saying that, that baseball – you know, it's perfect in that. But I think the commissioner needed to act really harsh. You know, the technology might allow you to uh, to cheat in ways that you uh, – that uh, now banging the uh, garbage can down in the uh, down in the tunnel seems archaic to me. Yes. Uh, so they have a TV, they have a feed, they have a real-time feed, they have uh, used an algorithm or whatever to decipher the uh, signs. But it boils down to if a change-up's called, you're a boom – and if if the hitter can hear it, the catcher can hear it, the umpire right. can hear it. So it's not a secret. Yes, but the video. I don't know if I the, gave you an answer to that. Right, but let's just let's just do one more layer on this because the video rooms. I believe video rooms during game time situations should be eliminated. You can watch all the video you want before a game and after a game, but video in game should be disallowed. It seems to me that would clear a lot of this up. That seems to make total sense. I know they had delays when they started putting feeds in. I mean, I played long enough and a long time ago where TV wasn't uh, an everyday part of the, the game. We played on Saturday afternoons, the game of the week, uh, Monday night baseball, and then locally sometimes you had your road games that were put, but no home games were ever put on. So it does make sense. And then when they started putting the TV on, there was a delay in the uh, clubhouse to stop you from doing all that kind of stuff, and I think that was controlled. Uh, now with everybody's separate cameras and analysis of everything that goes on, all of a sudden now you have real-time um, view. So um, maybe that, that – I don't know the full value. I mean, other sports have used iPads and uh, for, for plays and directions and, and recognizing defenses and all that kind of stuff. Um, and But I, I, I agree. Uh, the analysis of uh, the game on TV uh, or in your iPad or something should be reserved for tomorrow uh, and, and just play the game out on the field. Um, based on what you know and how you play. And I don't want you to have to adjudicate angry fan reaction, but from your vantage point, Cal, as someone who played the game at the highest level and is one of the most revered voices in the game, is there anything tainted about either the Houston Astros World Championship or the Boston Red Sox? I think it's really hard to determine the value and what, what happened. Is it, is it overstated? Is it overplayed? Is it the fact that they had really talented players, um, which – you know, I, I would tend to give credit to really talented players, but it is a huge advantage if you know what's coming. I, I don't know if I, I can go as far as saying uh, uh, pitching to a steroid guy or pitching to a guy that knows what's coming. You still have to look for a breaking ball. Uh, if it's going to be a breaking ball, you still have to wait and, and hit on that. But but it is an advantage. It is kind of funny. I, I will tell a little story. 
Um, if somebody's tipping their pitches to you, or if you're tipping your batting stance to the pitcher, if I'm standing close or I'm standing close to the plate, away from the plate, I'm giving an indication to the pitcher about what I'm doing. And then he sees that and then adjusts to it and then uses that. So that's not cheating. And if I'm standing at home plate and the pitcher is uh, tipping his pitches to me and not knowing it, and I see a pattern in his delivery that tells me what pitch is coming, um, I think that's okay to use. Um, and maybe even if you're on second base and you're a base dealer and you see the sequence of signs and you determine this is a curveball and this is a good pitch to steal on, that seems to be okay. You're using it within the game and you're noticing things, which uh, there's a responsibility for the other team to, to, to stop some of that. But my standard uh, when the hitting was, I told you, I didn't give a pitch from second base and I didn't receive one. And I thought it was really weird to have somebody give location from the on-deck serve and all that. I didn't want any, any part of that. But there is certain elements of pattern behavior in the game that's just kind of smart baseball and, uh, and watching that and doing that. But it is, a, it is a big advantage. I can't tell you, should you take the World Series away? I think um, it's tainted. Um, um, but I don't know whether anyone can actually look at it and say, okay, because you did this, um, you know, we'll take the uh, championship away. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's hard for me. I'm glad that I'm not the commissioner or anybody else <laughs> has to make those decisions. It's just to, to how, how much it helped them is, uh, is still – because I still go back to playing against teams that, that had the reputation of doing it and you knew it and you devised strategies against it. Right. Well, you and I both know, Cal, that fans will apply their own asterisks. Well, for sure. So you, you, don't, get, you don't get all this credit that, uh, that maybe you deserve because um, there's a shadow over your success. Uh, I want to use everything you just said as a bridge to one of my all-time favorite players – Growing up in San Diego, Tony Gwynn, uh, yeah. in a second. But one thing I want to ask before we get to that, analytics, uh, have they enhanced the game and the understanding of the game, or have they muddied some of the pure, instinctive, intuitive emotion part of the game? Um, I like data, and I'd like to take all the data I could and decide what is going to help me and what is not going to help me. And I think from that standpoint, it is good to have that data. The problem is when you have too much data and then you're, you're analyzing all kinds of data and you don't match the baseball piece with it, then it becomes confusing. Um, and maybe it becomes a little robotic and then you lose some of the uh, intuition about how to play and how to, how to position yourself. If you're just playing a rote um, a shift, um, things change in the course of counts and uh, hitters change as far as uh, how, they're, how they're positioning. And I, I had success at shortstop as a bigger guy because – I was able to apply some of those things to my position. So sometimes I think it, um, you, you want more and more and more, but you don't exactly know how to apply that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Pitchers, I think it's really valuable to be able to compare spins and all that because they're cre creating their own mechanics. Hitters are being um, affected by the timing. So you'd almost argue that you want there's some basic fundamentals, but I can't duplicate my exact swing all the time because there's too many factors that go into it. So you want to figure out a way that gives you the best chance to hit. And so some of that, um, some of that data or some of the uh, data that comes out of uh, the perfect swing, I think you can throw that, you know, that sort of out of the window. You have to look at what's the perfect swing for you. Tony Gwynn, uh, you were talking a lot about the video component and the studying and baseball. As you well know, Tony, for himself and maybe for the game itself, revolutionized the use of VHS videotaping, very old technology, but it was important at the time. He watched a ton of video before games. He watched video after games. He worked on his swing. This all brings me to one of the greatest weekends of my life, which uh, you participated in with Tony Gwynn in Cooperstown, New York. 83,000 or some odd people, the largest crowd ever assembled in Cooperstown for a Hall of Fame induction. I was there with my three children, my mother, my best friend, and my brother. Tell me a little bit about Tony that weekend and your, re your reflections on his life in Major League Baseball. Well, uh, um, I sit on the board of the Hall of Fame now, and we had a call, and they just uh, decided, um, and, and they re referenced the 83,000 in the year that Tony Gwynn and I went in. And uh, the crowd this year for Derek Jeter was going to rival that or pass that. Right, you know, there was right. A, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of momentum, and you want to have, you want to let, you want to experience that. If you're going to Cooperstown as a fan, or to have Derek experience that as well. So they postponed it for a year. They're going to induct uh, Derek next year. 
And so you can expect to have that sort of big crowd that we had. But um, I tell you what, I enjoyed uh, the Hall of Fame for a lot of reasons, but none greater than doing it with Tony, because you could sit there together and you could talk about things. I really liked how he looked about uh, baseball, how he went about his, uh, his game, the person that he was. It really enhanced our experience together. So I don't know what it would have been like having not had him uh, next to me. We both experienced that uh, crowd uh, in, in our own ways, but it was a fantastic uh, experience. As far as the videotape, Tony was way ahead of his time, you know, and uh, he looked at uh, the mechanics of his swing. Like if I look at my swing too much on videotape, I, I, I would try to duplicate what I see, I copy it. But he, he looked at it in minute detail and he really honed his. And maybe it was the way that he gained confidence. Um, I, I really see value in the uh, videotape as far as scouting about what pitchers are trying to do to you. Tony knew all about that and he knew all about the mechanics of his swing. And uh, there, was, there wasn't too many uh, hitters out there that could do what Tony Gwynn could do. Can you remember a player when you watched this player at batting practice and you heard the crack of the bat, you said to yourself, that is a singular kind of hitter? <laughs> singular meaning singles? No, just a, a really great hitter. I mean, I've been told that, that there is something distinctive for the best hitters about what that sound is. And everyone who's been around the game for a long time hears it and turns their head and says, that guy's got it. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have, we've had uh, different rounds of BP. They can see difference the way the ball jumps off someone's bat. The popular uh, thing now to, to measure that is uh, your exit below, your exit right. that comes off the bat. But you don't need to have uh, an exit velo to understand that that ball's coming off uh, Mike Piazza's bat like this. Or, uh, or if you're playing third and Dave Winfield is coming up and he uh, gets out on one a little bit uh, and, you, and you hear the sound of the bat coming towards you, um, those guys produced uh, a sound that uh, it, it is different. Um, it, and, uh, and if you're sitting in the uh, uh, dugout during BP and you're not paying attention and you hear a sound like that, you immediately look to see who's in the, in the batting cage. Um, when you think about your career, uh, there are some who might say you and Dan Marino have something in common, meaning you had this amazing career and there was an expectation because early in your career, he went to the Super Bowl, you went to the World Series, and then it never happened again. And I think that is something that's hard for people to understand that even greatness doesn't guarantee you that level of achievement team wide. Well, I mean, it's a team game, and some games, uh, um, you would argue in baseball, one person, you can devise a strategy to beat one person. Uh, um, if you're playing against Barry Bonds, and Barry Bonds is the great Barry Bonds, you can choose to pitch to him um, or not pitch to him four times. He has four impacts on the game. Um, other sports, maybe basketball, um, distributing the ball in your presence on the floor, you might have a bigger influence in that, in that championship uh, uh, level. Dan Marino was a great player, put up uh, big-time numbers. Um, and uh, I came uh, up as part of a good team, and we went to the last day of the season in 82, and then we won the World Series in 83. I don't think Dan did win the uh, Super Bowl, did no. he? No, went, but didn't, but didn't win, yeah. Didn't come back. And then there was a brief period of time that we got back in the playoffs. I look at my career, and I wish that it was like Derek Jeter's or Chipper Jones, where they came into a situation. Chipper Jones, they won his first 14 years. They won – the pennant and a, a bad year for him was losing out early. Now they ended up, only ended up winning one world series. Well, only one world series. Derek Jeter won a number of world series, but I mean, he was part of a really excellent uh, time um, with, with the Yankees and he was a good, he was a big part of that. Um, but you can easily see that if you put Chipper Jones or Derek in another team, you know, they still be great players, but um, they might not necessarily be able to drag a team to the world series. Before I let you go, you mentioned basketball. Basketball was an important part of you keeping fit when you were a baseball player. We'll talk a little bit about that and also how are you keeping fit now and how are you existing in this unreal reality that we're going through right now? <laughs> how am I staying fit now? I'm, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> no, the, uh, it is kind of funny is that you exercise now for your general health as opposed to for a specific reason or playing and getting ready for uh, – um, yeah, your body takes a little bit of a beating over years. I mean, it was pounding for basketball, it was pounding for baseball. So you look for, to do um, um, a little things are, are less stressful on your body. 
I got into bike riding, um, and uh, I, I like to, uh, to to be on a mountain bike. I like to be on a road bike, so that'll help me in some ways. But I like just the fun of doing it, not riding in a pack, not trying to be Lance Armstrong or anything, just just uh, going out for exercise so that you would feel better. Um, if I don't have that competitive need or that competitive urge, um, to me, bike riding almost takes you back to a kid where that was your yeah. transportation. I'd look over there. I especially, especially like riding a bike in a city. So if I'm flying into a city and I have a reason to be there for a couple of days, um, I'll look at a bike shop, I'll rent a bike, and then uh, I'll ride around the city. Um, I did that in Boston when I was uh, doing some uh, work for uh, TBS. And we went into Boston. And I remember just seeing the hotel and then the ballpark, the hotel, the ballpark. For all those years, it just seemed like that was the best way to do it. Then all of a sudden, I get on a bike and I go down the Charles River. And you start to get a feel for, uh, you know, Boston and, and the place. So you can cover a lot of, a lot of ground on a bicycle. So um, I guess that's my only, only uh, form of exercise uh, uh, these days. I don't lift. I don't play basketball. I don't run around uh, like I used to and kill myself. And maybe it's because I did it for so long that I want to live a little bit more relaxed lifestyle now. Before I let you go, last thing. Uh, favorite baseball movie? Favorite movie in general? Uh Favorite book and uh, your favorite kind of music? Boy, that's uh, um, it's revealing in many ways. It's like I see that you got a bookshelf behind you. Um, yes, <laughs> plenty of things that uh, you know. If you're doing these things now, these Zoom interviews, uh, like you don't see anything. Uh, I think behind me that can give you any indication. Yeah. Andre hat right up there. Yeah, they're analyzing <laughs> your books and all that kind of stuff on there, and you don't really think about sometimes what's in the background. But uh, I like sports movies. Um, one of my favorite movies uh, was Bull Durham. And mm-hmm. Bull Durham because uh, I think my dad, uh, my dad managed the guy that wrote that or produced that. Um, right. What's that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so uh, and I lived in the minor leagues in that time frame when that uh, those terminologies were used, like uh, Kevin Costner used the word meat all the time. Yes, exactly. Sounds really goofy all these years later, but during that time frame, those were the <laughs> words that were being used in clubhouses. So it felt real to me. So I liked that. It was a nice story. And my, and my dad um, managed in the minor leagues for the first 14 years of my life. So I got a chance to see that, and it made me feel good. The Natural's really cool. Um, one of my favorite movies is A Few Good Men. Yeah. Uh, I do like uh, um, watching that uh, over and over again from time to time. An Officer and a Gentleman's pretty good. Excellent. Uh, so it goes back to a, to a few movies. Um, two that are, are confusing to people when I say them is Shawshank Redemption. Um, I like that one. And Silence of the Lambs. For some, reason, for some reason, I like the interaction between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. They, uh, that was going back and forth. I was mesmerized by that sort of uh, human behavior back and forth conversation. And so that, that's one of my uh, top ones. So analyze all those for you for me there you go uh, any book that's been important in your life uh, I, I generally like to read um, um, more nonfiction um, hmm. and since I didn't go to college I think a lot of times when I was in the back of the plane I'd be reading history and those yeah. sorts of so uh, I can't say one of the books I really there's two books I really liked um, um, but I couldn't get enough of unbroken was one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're looking in the, you're reading that book and you're thinking what else could happen to this guy right um and the other one was uh, i served on a uh, as a consultant to a movie called the fan and the book right. called the fan was in a boston uh, scenario uh, a crazed fan right robert de niro ended up playing that character that was a really interesting book the movie didn't fully portray that you know uh, right. many times uh it, it doesn't but the book was really good um the movie, uh, I think three quarters of the movie was good, and the last, the last rainstorm thing kind of moved, kind of ended it for me. <laughs> and what kind of music does Cal Ripken Jr. love? Um, I grew up sort of more on uh, Motown uh, sort of music, so uh, so I do enjoy that. But I've taken a uh, fancy to a little bit more country music here lately. Fantastic, Cal! I can't thank you enough. It's been a great, great pleasure. All the best to you. One last time, explain to people how they can help with food insecurity through your foundation. So it feels like uh, you've dissected me pretty good for my life now. Let me go, can we come back to the current stage? Um, yes, uh, our foundation is, uh, is involved in a program called Strikeout Hunger. And uh, 
It's uh, to help food, food uh, insecurity all the way across the country. Our foundation has partnered with Keeping America, uh, I mean Feeding America, and Feeding America knows about uh, food. We put our money where our mouth is. We're uh, asking uh, everyone, we're challenging everyone to, uh, if, they, if they'd like to uh, help out uh, in this current need um, to feed uh, you know, these families and these kids. And these are the same communities we put fields in, the same communities we put programs in. But the real need now is uh, to make sure that, uh, that food is available to them uh, regularly. So you can do that by going to ripkinfoundation.org or my new Twitter handle, at Cal Ripken Jr., uh, there's a real quick click on button that uh, will will get you right to uh, where you can where you can uh, donate whatever you'd like. As the young people say, been there, done that. I have. Cal, <laughs> it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so very much. Hope to see you in person when we get on the other side of this. For sure. When Thanks, things get Cal. back to normal, let's go have a bite. You can count on it. Thank you, sir. Be well. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.